So I decided that what I really needed to do as we are starting is we really need to review over the last several weeks. So I'm just going to try and do this briefly. And this was really hard because I feel like I'm not covering anything well tonight <laughs> because we're talking about love and we're talking about respect. Both are huge topics. And so we're just going to kind of skim over them a little bit. And then I'm going to take time to review as well. But I think that that is really, really critical because of what I already said in the fact that we need to be reminded of what those foundational truths are so that as we get to loving and respecting and submitting to our husbands, that we have in our minds the reason why we're doing that. And I was telling Craig tonight as we were sitting eating dinner, and I said, it's just so important that we understand these broad principles of scripture and doctrine so that when we get to the very specific things like love and respect and submission, that we aren't separating those things from bringing glory to God. Because we all say that, right? This is our heart's desire. I want my life to glorify God. And then when I'm running into some form of an issue with my husband, I nurse my bad attitude as though that's okay and I defend it because he did something that I didn't like. So I blame shift and I separate those things from the fact that my desire is to bring glory to God. And so we need to be able to see those little attitudes rob us of the opportunity of bringing glory to God. So we're going to basically just quickly go over the last five lessons so that uh, we have that foundation. So our first lesson when we first began, if you remember, was God's glory versus my desires. So I must desire God's glory above my own desires. And I'm sorry, I didn't give you that on your outline. Um, yeah, so none of the review is there. I do think the one page in the back is blank if you wanted to use that. So anyways, God is the one that brings the greatest value to our marriages. Because remember, we think, well... Um, the marriage is about the wife, the marriage is about the husband, the marriage is about us. But who is the marriage actually about? The marriage is actually about God, that he would receive the greatest glory. So both husbands and wives are secondary in the marriage for the purpose of bringing glory to God. So Dave Harvey wrote this, Marriage was not just invented by God, it belongs to God. It actually exists for him more than it exists for you and me and our spouses. Marriage is not first about me or my spouse. Obviously, the man and woman are essential, but they are also secondary. God is the most important person in a marriage. Marriage is for our good, but it is first for God's glory. And we can never forget that. If we have a wrong understanding of God, ourselves, our husbands, our marriages, or our roles in marriage, we are going to fail to reflect God's glory in our marriage. So just some quick points here. Uh, seeking personal desires, this is what we should not be doing, is seeking personal desires over God's glory. Because when we do, that harms our marriages. Seeking selfish pursuits over God's glory leads to evil. Seeking personal pleasure over God's glory leads to conflict. Whenever we are pursuing our own desires, things that are ultimately for self, we are not choosing to give glory to God in that moment. And instead, we are responding sinfully. And we need to always keep that at the forefront of our mind. And the thing that helps us keep a right mindset is the fear of the Lord. Because remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And so as we fear the Lord, then we are going to have a right response to our husbands within our marriage. So number two, or lesson two, we need to be willing to own our own sin. Because what does sin do? Sin keeps us from glorifying God. 
So we need to be so quick to see our sin and to despise and hate our sin. We need to understand that we are entirely responsible for our own sin, no matter how our husband sins against us or even sins in general. Like the Apostle Paul, we need to be able to say that it is our ambition to be pleasing to God. And we have to keep that in our minds as we think through the things that are coming, these practical things of loving God. I mean, of loving our husbands. Loving God is important as well, but loving our husbands and submitting to our husbands. So this is vitally important to the health of our marriage. If it is truly your desire to please the Lord, you must identify your sin and seek to forsake it. And one of the relationships in which we are often inclined to sin, of course, is where? With our husbands, because we have the most interaction with them. They know us the best. And because we have so much interaction with them in the most private and vulnerable parts of our hearts and lives, then we tend to respond sinfully to them before we would maybe somebody else. I think even before our children, oftentimes, we will oftentimes give more grace to our kids than we will to our husbands. So what are the things we need to consider in this? Remember, there's a war going on in our hearts. It's the spirit battling the flesh all the time. And so we want to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not being controlled by our flesh. Our sin is first and foremost against a holy God. And so we need to keep that in mind. Sin is not just something that I do and it doesn't make any difference. It does. Even those little attitudes make a huge difference because they are against God. We will one day give account to God for the things that we have done. And of course, we know there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Because Christ took the wrath that we deserve. But we need to keep in mind, we still um, will give an account for these things. Will there be reward or we just only get to heaven? Jesus Christ is the standard for our holiness. All right, well, we've got a lot of work to do because we can't compare each other to each other, right? We can't look at our girlfriend and go, well, I'm better than her. And we certainly can't look at our husbands and go, well, I'm better than him. Because what is that? It's pride. We have to begin to recognize our own sin and own it for what it is. Even when our husband's sins are worse than our sin, we are still always responsible for even the tiniest sin. So then three, lesson three, what is the purpose of marriage? Why am I married? And of course, uh, so there's four main points here, but we are married to glorify God, as we already mentioned in lesson one. So how do we bring glory to God? God is glorified when we bear fruit in our lives, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. God is glorified when we use our gifts within the church body. If we are sinning continually in our marriage and we are sinning against our husband, guess what that is going to do to our ability to serve well within the church? It's going to sabotage it. And so we have to be careful that we are cultivating a good, loving, God-honoring relationship with our husband so that we can then serve well within the church. God is glorified when unbelievers see Christ's character in us. When difficult things happen and they see our marriages still walking in harmony. One of the, one of, there's a few things that are very disastrous on marriages. One is losing a child. And when the, when the world looks in and sees that a husband and wife lose a child and yet still love one another and still love God, that's a huge testimony. Finances is also another huge destroyer of marriages. When the world can see us walk through difficult financial times and yet we still love one another, God is honored and glorified. God is glorified when we live in our marriages according to his word, not according to the psychologist, not according to that book, not according to that TV, not according to that influencer. When we live within our marriages according to the truths of his word, God is glorified. Okay, so 
I said that there was four things. So I just gave you one to glorify God, and then I gave you how that's done. So now I'm going to give you number two. So why are we married? Number one, to glorify God. Number two, to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Remember, this is what marriage is. We as the women reflect the church, and our husbands are to reflect the character of Christ. So three, to build up the body of Christ together within the local church. This is how we bring glory to God. And then number four, we bring glory to God when we in our own personal individual lives are conformed to the image of our beautiful, wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. So then moving on to lesson four, we talked about scripture's view of women, which is critical because the world and even various Christian circles are trying to tell us that the design that God has in Scripture is not right because they try and tell us that Scripture is telling us that men are more valuable than women. That is not true. God has made men and women equal, yet their roles are entirely different, but for a good reason. So, God created men and women both in his image. Scripture promotes the dignity and care of women. God used women in Scripture for important tasks. Do you remember we talked about some of these examples like the women who protected Moses? Uh, remember the women who ministered in the early church, Priscilla and Tabitha. God used women to prepare men for service. Remember Lois and Eunice? And Hannah. So also then, continuing just to move on in our review, Jesus had a high view of women. Remember how Jesus loved and took care of women. Women nowhere in scripture are of lesser value than men. It's just a different role. It's just a different relationship. But we have to be confident in this. Because if we aren't confident in this, we are going to rebel against the role that God has given us in his word. So then number five uh, was the last one before we, we took the break over Christmas. So lesson five was a woman's role in marriage. So God created a wife as a helper to her husband. And we can be all insulted by that because we'd rather be the leader, right? But we shouldn't be insulted by that because that's a wonderful uh, responsibility that God has given us to come alongside and help our husbands. Husbands and wives are equal in nature. We talked about that. A godly wife is a blessing. Then we, yeah, then we went and talked about just what that looks like for a wife to be a blessing to her husband. And this is what we're desiring to do is be a blessing to our husbands so that they can be a good example to their children, so that they can work hard to provide for their families, so that they can serve well in the church. We want for our husbands to reflect the character of Christ. And as we come alongside them and love them and help them, we give them the greatest opportunity to be able to do that. So how do we do this? How do we be this blessing? Well, scripture told us, first of all, a wife is a good thing. It's a good thing for a man to get a wife. Well, we want to make sure that if this is what scripture says, that when our husband got us, it was a good thing. Because we don't want him saying, I wish I wouldn't have gotten that one. A wise wife is from the Lord. Are we wise? What a blessing for a husband to have concerns and the need to make important decisions and all kinds of things in life. And to be able to go to his wife and say, I'm wrestling with this. What do you think? And for his wife to be able to say, you know what, honey, based on the things I've been studying lately, this is what I think scripture says about that. What an invaluable gift. And what does Proverbs 31 say? Her worth, if she can do this, her worth is far above jewels. This is what our goal is. 
So an excellent wife is a crown to her husband. Are we like the crown of thorns? Or are we a beautiful crown that is a blessing to him, that makes him look good? Remember Proverbs 31. The elders know her husband in the gate of the city because she reflects so well on him. A value of a godly wife, as I already said, is far above jewels. And so this is what our desire needs to be, is that we would be godly wives. And if you get to the end of that chapter, Proverbs 31, what is it that is the defining characteristic of this woman? She, she fears the Lord. And I already said that earlier, right? It starts with a fear of the Lord. And then a godly wife is a reward. What kind of reward are we being? So as we move in tonight to talking about love and respect, are we a loving reward? Are we a respectful reward? Are we the kind of reward that when he comes home from work, he's happy to be home? He's glad that he gets to leave all the, the difficulties of the day and work and the demands and come home to this wonderful reward? Or does he come home wishing he could just go lock himself in the bedroom and turn on the TV? That's not the kind of wife we want to be. So the role of the wife is to love and respect her husband. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. It is to submit. It is to keep the home. We talked about that before. And it is to bear and nurture children. So the two aspects of this that we've already talked about is to keep the home and to bear and nurture children. So then tonight we're going to talk about love and respect. So I did want to read this. I don't think I read this quote to you last time, but I'm going to read it to you right now as we kind of think about moving into our study. And I knew that this review was going to be a little bit long, and I apologize for that. We still will only talk an hour. But um, I do think it's important to have this foundation. But with this little thing right here, I think it's good for us to be thinking about this as well. One of the lies that has been promoted in our culture is that women are victims as women learned to feel sorry for themselves, they also learned to hate their role in marriage and family. Women are told they are victims, victims of the past, of social norms, of traditions, and of men. Only victimhood will make them willing to break out of their Judeo-Christian past, which is to live out the role that was given to us in Scripture. If we start to feel sorry for ourselves, I think that's probably about the quickest thing that will make us rebel against our husbands, right? Well, why did he do that? I'm not submitting to that. Why should I have to love him when he acts like that? But it's much bigger than even just our husbands, right? It's so much bigger than that because when our whole society is telling us as women that we need to throw off the strappings of, of this this backward way of thinking to stay home and to love our children and to raise our children and to be wives that love and honor and respect and submit to our husbands, that, that is, that's bad for us. And we went through all kinds of statistics. We have to make sure, and, and especially the younger you are, the more you have to be cognizant of this, this truth right here. Because... As time has moved, this idea of victimhood has become stronger and stronger and stronger. So that's why I'm saying the younger you are, the more influenced you are by that way of thinking. And when you start to have these self-pity thoughts for yourself, you need to immediately recognize it and repent. Father, please forgive me because you are sovereign in all things. You have given me this beautiful, wonderful life that you have deemed is good for me. Therefore, I need to live in a manner that reflects the fruit of the Spirit in my life, in my heart, so that you are glorified. Don't you just love how scripture, you take all these different parts of scripture and you put them together in the beautiful picture that is painted. Oh, I love scripture. So there's another part I'm going to tell you tonight. I'm so excited. I was telling Craig, I'm like, I never thought of it like that before. Um, so anyways, we'll get there in a minute. But anyways, okay, so now we're moving in to our actual lesson.
And I'm gonna start with a little example because we always have to do that, right? So first year of marriage, you say this. Hey baby, I'm really worried about you. You've got a bad sniffle and there's no telling about these things with all the strep going around. I'm putting you in the hospital this afternoon for a general checkup and a good rest. I know the food's lousy, but I'll be bringing your meals in from Rizzoni's. I already have it all arranged with the floor superintendent. Second year. Second year is this. Listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that cough. I've called Doc Miller to rush over here. Now you go to bed like a good boy. I love you. Third year. Maybe you better lie down, honey. Not, nothing like a little rest when you feel lousy. I'll bring you some soup. Fourth year. Now look, dear, be sensible. After you get home tonight from work, you can lay down and take it easy for the evening. Fifth year. Why don't you take a couple of aspirin? Sixth year. I wish you'd just gargle or something instead of sitting around barking like a seal all evening. Which year are you in? <laughs> Seventh year. For Pete's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia? Well, that's kind of funny, but it's kind of true too, right? <laughs> Paul Tripp wrote this, and this is really a long quote, but I'm going to read it anyways because I think it just kind of encapsulates this whole thing. So he wrote this, and what did you expect? He said, many couples think it is love that keeps them together, but there are signs that they may be living in the middle of a love drought and they don't even know it. We are all rocked to sleep by the regularity. The things you see and experience over and over again tend to be the things that at some point you quit noticing. There are many couples in that situation in their marriages. They would say they think they have a pretty normal marriage, but they think, am I doing something wrong, Jessica? Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, they would say they think they have a pretty normal marriage, but they think this is because what should be abnormal to them became so regular that it became the new normal. And when it did, they quit seeing and hearing it. The problem for these couples is not that they are dissatisfied with their marriage. No. Their problem is that they are all too satisfied with something that falls way short of what God designed a normal marriage to be. Rather than fixing what is broken, we have learned to live with it as if it's not broken. We are not moved to seek help because we don't really see the places where help is needed anymore. We are comfortable when we should be concerned. We are passive when we should be active. We are satisfied when we should be dissatisfied. We get up each day and make things work the, way, the best way we can, but our best falls way short of God's best. It's true, isn't it? That little example, what year are you in? But oftentimes as time passes and the difficulties come, and the trials of life and the busy chaos of having kids and all of that, we start to become very complacent in our effort. We start to not notice the things that used to be really important to us. Writing the sweet notes, putting them on his lunch when he goes to work, sending a sweet text, whatever it is. We forget to do those things that is that active pursuit and love for our husbands that we did early on in marriage. I would guess that the majority of truly Christian marriages struggle not because of big things like infidelity, but because of a thousand little things that fail to demonstrate Christ-like love to one another. Because we're distracted, we fill our time with all other kinds of things. So we finally are on the outline with Roman numeral one, which is love. So A, under that, Biblical principles of love, and that's what we're going to basically look at, and there's so much that we can talk about with love, but I am going to just talk mostly really about these principles and how they apply. So love is a defining characteristic of a Christian. It was first demonstrated by God in sending his son to redeem us. So number one is love begins with God. This is not something that probably is unfamiliar to us. 
Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were in the worst possible condition in our sin, destined for hell, destined for God's wrath, pursuing wickedness with our whole hearts, Christ gave his life to bring us to God. He loved us when we were yet sinners. And because he loved us first, then we could love him back. But first we have to keep in mind that love, true biblical love, always begins with God. So number two, only believers, meaning true Christians who have been redeemed, can love with Christ-like love. Obviously, an unbeliever can never love with Christ-like love because they are devoid of the Holy Spirit that gives the strength and the power to be able to do that. So 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another for God, for, excuse me, for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And 1 John 4, 19 says, We love because he first loved us. When, when God opens our eyes and quickens our hearts and brings us to salvation, at that point, we can begin to truly love. What an amazing thing. There is nothing in our lives other than our sin that can keep us from loving other people. No person can keep us from loving them. No circumstance can keep us from loving them. But our sin can keep us from loving. And so that's why, as we already were talking about, that's why we have to recognize our sin and own it and repent of it because that is the thing that will keep us from loving our husbands is our own sin. No matter how badly our husbands sin against us or just choose something different than us, they can never ultimately keep us from loving them because we have the living power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that strengthens and enables us to love them regardless. And where did that come from? From a God who did that for us. This infinite love that reached down into the mire of our sinful mess and plucked us out for his glory and gave us the ability to love well. That should motivate us to love our husbands well. Number three, in response to God's love, believers must love others. This is not just a suggestion. We must love others. 1 John 4, 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is the general principle for all believers. We must love others. And guess what? Our husbands are included in that others. And the thing is, like, we have to be really careful with scripture because do you guys do your, your daily Bible reading to get through the Bible in a year, maybe two years or five years or whatever, but you do your daily reading, right? And it's so easy to read through this and go, oh, I need to be loving others. And, and who do you think of when you think of others? I think usually of, oh, y'all, I should be loving the girls at church more. I don't often think of others as, oh, wow. Yeah, this attitude I've had right now is not loving others that includes my husband. But others includes my husband, my children, those closest to me. There is no excuse or exception. No matter what condition our marriage is in or what our husbands are like, we must love him with sacrificial Christ-like love. So not only is it that we can do this, but we must, we are required to love our husbands. And when we do, what happens? God is glorified as we lay our lives down for the good of our husbands by loving them well. This is something that should that we really need to meditate on and think about so that we are striving to love them well. Because as we do this, God is honored and glorified. And oftentimes we think that nobody notices, right? 
because it's in our own little private parts of our heart. It's at home where the doors are closed and nobody really knows. But our sin always affects others, and it affects our ability to love and minister to one another in the church. Our sin is going to negatively affect not just ourselves and not just our husbands, but it has that ripple effect going out. We must love our husbands so that we can then love one another well. I'm not going to love you well if I don't love my husband well. Number four, love for others must be continually increasing. Love for our husband, uh, well, I guess, okay, so I just said that. Often in marriage, the opposite can tend to be true, right? Instead of growing in our love for our husband, our hearts begin to grow cold. He does things we don't like. He doesn't do things we wish he would do. Sometimes he sins against us. Our expectations fail to be met, and over time we quit putting forth the effort we did after the honeymoon. Did you catch what I said? Our expectations fail to be met. Our poor dear sweet husbands don't even have to sin against us. It's just that they didn't do what we wanted. And we can make a whole case and accuse them. And we can blame shift and be so comfortable in our sin. And they never did a thing wrong. It was just that our preferences, our expectations were unmet. Our preferences were crossed. We have to guard our hearts against this. Life is not about me. And life is not about you to you. We need to be keeping our lives focusing on who it truly is about, right? That God would be glorified. So I just wanted to give you several verses here because when we're thinking about love for others must be continually increasing, I just thought this was interesting as I was kind of looking at all these verses together. And just, just listen as I, as I read these. 1 Peter 1.22 says, since you have an obedience to the truth, purify your souls for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Is this the way you think about loving your husband? Fervently love my husband. Okay. I got to say, when I read this verse, I don't, my husband is not the first person that comes to my mind to fervently love him, but he should be. Philippians 1.9 Paul's prayer, he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. Am I thinking about my love abounding to my husband? Okay, I'm going to get really personal. We're going to get really personal in a couple weeks. So, you know, it's been a few days since you guys have been intimate. It's been maybe a few weeks since you've been intimate. Is your love abounding to your husband? You're like, no, I'm just tired. I'm uncomfortable. I don't feel like it. I have a headache. Is your love abounding to him in this wonderful place that he so desires? We have to check our hearts and identify for being selfish. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. Is your love for your husband increasing? Do you love him more now than when you first got married? 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we ought also to give thanks to God for you because the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Is our love that is growing greater for our husbands something that other people can look at that and praise God for? Did you ever think about that before? There's so many things that, that we just tend to have abstract ideas about. But we need to bring these principles down to the nitty-gritty and think about how they apply to my everyday life. The sad fact is that we can grow cold in our love for our husband. The person who should be nearest and dearest to us becomes the recipient of our lack of love, unkindness, impatience, frustration, unforgiveness, bitterness, do you remember what Christ had against the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation? Do you remember what it was? Yeah, you lost your first love. Revelation 2.4 says, but this, Jesus speaking to the church, he says, but this I have against you, that you have left your first love. 
If the believers in the church at Ephesus could neglect their love for Christ, does it not stand to reason that wives can also neglect their love for their husbands? If we will grow cold in our love for Christ, who has given us everything, then I think our love can grow cold for our husbands as well, and we have to guard against that. If we find our love for our husband is waning, we need to evaluate whether we are loving Christ the way we should. Do you see how that works? Two sides of the coin. So number five, love for others is evidence that we love God. When we do love our husbands well, it is evidence that we have first loved our God well. 1 John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So we can be discontent, unsatisfied, ungrateful, complaining, bitter, resentful, unforgiving of our husbands, and then come to church and sing great praise songs and love one another so well. This is hypocritical. Because if we truly love God the way we should be loving God, then we will love our husbands well. If we do not love our husbands, it reveals that we are not loving God as we ought. No matter what we say or how much we try to blame him for his sin, etc., the facts don't change. If we are not loving our husbands as God has instructed in his word, we need to recognize that we are also failing to love God with all our heart, soul, and might. Okay, so this is the part that I was thinking about. Because remember I said sometimes it's easier to love our children than it is our husbands. We can tend to give more grace sometimes to our children than we can tend to want to give to our husbands. So this is a little bit off topic, but I think you'll appreciate the whole picture here. This is why I just love how like the different puzzle pieces of scripture, you like put them together and you're like, wow, what an awesome picture. Okay, so remember that this is what we should be teaching our children according to Deuteronomy 6. So if you were with us in the study last year, we went over that quite a bit. So Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 7 says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. So how can we teach our children to love God with all their heart when we are not loving him with all of our heart? If our love for our husbands has grown cold, we are not striving to love them. We are living before our children as hypocrites. This is extremely sobering. So did you get how all that comes together? We are to be loving our husbands because God has first loved us. We are to love God with all of our heart. And if we are, then we will love our husbands well. If we are not loving our husbands well, then we are not loving God with all of our heart. And the very thing we then try and take and teach our children to do is completely hypocritical because we are not doing that. We are not living out this truth that is so important. So when you hear people say it's so important that husbands and wives love one another, now you have the pieces of scripture all put together to understand why are they telling you this? Why is this so important? Because if we are going to love God with all of our heart, we are going to love others as well. And our husband is part of that others. We cannot be good mothers and not love our husbands is the bottom line. If we do not love our husbands well, we will not be good mothers, period. That's what scripture tells us. So number six, love must be the defining characteristic of the believer. So 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says this, let all that you do be done in love. 
We often read 1 Corinthians 4 through 7. You know, the part that says love is patient, love is kind, all of that. But we don't spend as much time considering the first three verses that precede that. So I am going to take a moment to read that to you. So 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 says this. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. We can be amazing people in our own minds. We can be amazing mothers and women in our own mind. But if we are failing to love our husbands, if we are failing to love our husbands, that means we're failing to love God. What, what does this verse tell us? It profits me nothing. I'm just a clanging gong. Wow, it gets really personal, doesn't it? But we need to be aware of this so that we are striving because what did we already look at? Our love for others should be increasing. It should be growing. Our love for our husbands should be doing that. All the good things we do have no value if they are not motivated by a heart that loves. I don't think I am exaggerating this statement because notice the last two phrases of verse 3. Paul wrote, If we do not have love, it profits me nothing. Only as we live life exercising love toward God and others, including, as I already said, our husbands, is their true benefit. So number seven, wives are commanded to love their husbands. This, of course, is so very familiar to us, Titus 2.4. So older women are to teach the younger women so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. Well, we know that. This is what the older women are, are to do. So I've always been fascinated by the fact that older women are commanded in Scripture to instruct younger women to love their husbands and children. If wives naturally love their families well, guess what? Yeah, The Holy Spirit wouldn't have included this command in Scripture. So what does that mean? It means we don't do it the way we should do it. And it is interesting that Scripture requires older women to teach the younger women to do this. I love that there is a relational aspect of women in the church working together to love our husbands in a manner that pleases the Lord. Isn't that the sweetest thing? Like, this is why we're all here, so that we can learn Scripture and learn how to love our husbands and come talk about how to do it. We don't come here and talk about the things that annoy us. We don't come here and, and gossip about the, the things our husband does, his failings, his mistakes, whatever, his sin. No, we come here as women all together and encourage each other to love our husbands more, to press on, to excel still more. This is a wonderful thing. There should never be shame and younger women asking an older woman how to love her husband. Older women have an obligation to build relationships with the younger women so that we can teach you how to do this. Because we've done a few things wrong in our lives. And by God's grace, we've done a few things right. And so we have, Lord willing, if we have studied scripture and been striving to apply it to our lives, something to be able to share, to encourage you, so that then you might be able to do that as well. Younger women should feel the freedom to ask older women what this looks like because God has commanded it in Scripture. And so much Christ-motivated unity is lost in churches and among women because we neglect to live out Titus 2. What a wonderful privilege we have. That is why the, this whole Bible study, what we're trying to accomplish with the older women and the younger women here, this is why this is so important to us, so that we can live this out. And specifically, as we're talking tonight about loving our husbands. So it was very sad. At the end of last week, I had a counselee who confided 
that there are no older women in her church to mentor her or instruct her in the Lord and in his word. That cannot ever be true of us at Grace Community Church. We cannot neglect Titus 2, older women teaching younger women how to love their husbands and children. This is way too important. Older women, if you feel ill-equipped to teach younger women how to love their husbands, then get to studying the word. That's why you're here, right? Studying the word. Repent of your sin and learn how to love your husbands. And I realize this is very trite, (laughs) just quick little statements, like it's really easy to do. And I understand it's not. I understand, especially when we have patterns of sin, it can be very difficult to set those things aside. But we need to be striving to do that. But I encourage you, do not let your failures keep you from reaching out to the younger woman. Your honesty regarding your past sinfulness and failures can be a blessing to a younger woman as you help her avoid similar pitfalls. So why is all this teaching necessary? Because we struggle to love our husbands with Christ-like love. So just a few questions here. I, don't, I might have left this on your outline. Did I leave the questions on? I did? Okay. So I'll just read over them quickly. So have you become complacent in your love for your husband? Have you failed to love your husband because you've become distracted by duties and responsibilities of life? I don't think we necessarily set out to let our love grow cold. I don't think any of us intentionally just decided that this is what we were going to do. But there's so many responsibilities. He has to work hard to, to scrape out a living, especially when a lot of us are single-income families, right? He has to work hard to provide. And if you're home with the kiddos all day long, homeschooling, laundry, meals, shopping, the house, all the things that come up, and then you guys are striving to pour your lives into each other and into the church at the same time. This is a lot to accomplish. But if we aren't careful in all these good things that we're trying to accomplish, we can let that love grow cold. And we will talk about this in a couple of weeks, but I do want to connect the dots. What happens when that love starts to grow cold is that oftentimes our intimacy with our husbands begins to wane as well. And we can't allow that to happen either. Have you prioritized your life in a way that your husband gets the leftovers of your time and energy? Oh my goodness, Craig and I have had talks about this and talks about this. Because I really wrestle to to leave time and energy to love my husband well. But I must do that. Because otherwise, I I am not living out the mandates of Scripture well. And then what do I have to share with you guys? If I'm failing all the time, have you grown comfortable in patterns of selfishness? Have you grown comfortable in laziness, just not willing to put forth the effort? Have you allowed your heart to grow resentful or bitter over something that's happened in the past or maybe a pattern of things that have happened? Do you harbor unforgiveness toward your husband? Do you value your ideas, interests, plans, and desires above your husband? I have a really very kind and gracious husband who would give me the moon if I would ask for it, and I'm not even kidding. And I have to be really careful that I don't ever take advantage of that because he is always willing to give me my preference. And I started, I don't, I don't know when it was, maybe it was when I started doing all the study for this, and I was like, I better be careful because I could really start to take advantage of this niceness and just always get whatever I want because he'll give it to me because he's kind and good and loving toward me. But I can't take advantage of that because I need to be loving him well and and seeking to give him his preferences as well. Do you make it difficult for your husband to love you? Are you a stumbling block to him that has become a temptation leading him to sin? It's kind of a little bit of a different twist on this, but I think it's one that is important that we need to think about. And actually, 
So um, I want to read this, this quote to you. Um, this is actually Henry Ironside from uh, John MacArthur's book, Divine Design. I think I mentioned that at the beginning of the study. It says this, just as some wives may be united to tyrannical and unreasonable men, so there are husbands who, after marriage, find that one who in days of courtship seems so docile and affectionate is as unreasonable as it is possible to be. So this is describing the wife. She's as unreasonable as it is possible to be. But still the husband is to love and care for her without indulging in wrath or anger. God, <laughs> this is funny, God knew how petty and trying some women's, some women's ways would be when he said to good men, be not bitter against them. In the power of the new life, one may manifest patience and grace under the most trying circumstances. Am I the most trying circumstance? That's really sobering. I do not want to be the most trying circumstance in his life. But clearly, that is true. Otherwise, God would not have included in Scripture, do not be embittered toward your wives. Are we giving them cause to become bitter against us? Oh, we need to be so careful. So number eight, a contentious wife is not a loving wife. And it kind of goes along with that quote I just read you. And so I just had to read you this because it's a great little example here. Sitting in the stands at a baseball game, a lady critic yelled, Ump, if I was your wife, I'd feed you poison. This was all the baseball umpire could stomach. Glaring back, he shouted, and if I were your husband, I'd take it. <laughs> okay, so... We do not want to be the wife whose husband would love to take the poison we offer. We want to make their lives delightful and joyful. But being a contentious wife is not going to accomplish that. Proverbs 21.9 and then 19 says this, It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. And Proverbs 27, 15 says, A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. Does your husband ever wish he could go live on the rooftop? Does he ever wish that he lived in the desert and not with you? Or are you that drip, 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 drip that never stops? you got to be really careful because our own blindness to our sin, in that we can become the contentious wife and not even realize that's what we've become. So to define love, what does it look like to love our husbands? <clears throat> and this is just kind of a loose um, quote of Chris's definition of love. Love is thinking, saying, and doing whatever is necessary and most beneficial in helping others to become more Christ-like. This, this should be our goal as we love our husbands. And our sin never makes it easier for them to become Christ-like. They can become more Christ-like when we sin against them, but it's not the easy way for it to happen. True Christ-like love is free from the defilement of sin. It is the selfless desire to lay oneself down for the good of the other person. The greatest good for any person is to look like Christ. This is our goal. We should strive to love our husbands in a manner that is free from self-love, self-promotion, self-pursuits, and self-desires. If we are going to love our husbands and children well, we need to know the word of God. We need to grow in our knowledge of God's love because it is his love that should pour forth from us to others. This means we need to know the character and attributes and the heart of God so that we can reflect all of that, his character and his attributes to others. Do you know when to confront sin and when to let love cover sin? Do you know when to rescue someone and when to let them experience the full consequences of their sin? 
Do you recognize when you are selfishly pursuing your own desires rather than looking out for the interests of your husbands? You're only going to find the answer to those things in the study of Scripture. If you don't know the Word of God and the character of God, you will not love your husband well. So perhaps... One of the most straightforward places to begin, of course, is with 1 Corinthians 13. And I am going to read that. We're not going to take time to look at that at all. But um, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. If you are wrestling to love your husband well, take this verse and put it on various note cards and meditate on this and evaluate every motive of your heart, every thought in your mind. Was that patient? Was that unbecoming? Was that a reflection of believing all things? that will help you begin to identify how well you love your husband. So what keeps us from loving our husbands? And I'm only giving you just a few things here, just basically for you to ponder, not going anywhere with these. Number one, fear. Because perfect love casts out fear, right? So what does fear do? (laughs) It casts out love on the other side of that. Oftentimes we don't love our husbands well because we're afraid that they're not going to take care of us, that their decision isn't going to be good. There's all kinds of things. Number two, selfishness keeps us from loving our husbands. Number three, entitlement keeps us, which is basically just selfishness, but entitlement keeps us from loving our husbands. Number four, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness keep us from loving our husbands. Laziness, number five, also keeps us from loving our husbands well. And number six, misguided priorities, which could be kids, job, home, ministry, hobbies, all kinds of things. When we get our priorities all mixed up, we are not going to love our husbands well either. And I really should have added at least one more just because I already mentioned it. Self-pity, that victim mentality is not going to enable us to love our husbands well. And so then, (laughs) okay, so we're out of time. And um, we haven't even talked about respect. So I'm actually, and I intentionally did this. I just gave you the printout. And really all that is, is from The Excellent Wife. I know I showed you guys this before. If you've never read this book, you need to get this book and you need to read this book. It's very helpful because she... Uh, That list of questions there, and please do, I ask you, please go home and read through those. I mean, you can even talk about them in your small group if you want to do that tonight. That's fine. Because we don't have time to talk about all the different aspects of respecting our husbands. But that list of questions can be very helpful to help us identify ways that perhaps we are disrespecting our husbands and we're not even realizing that we're doing it. So I got the list out of this, uh, The Excellent Wife by Martha Peace. And um, like I said, if you haven't got this book, I would really encourage it because she has various different things like little charts of sinful things that we do. So we need to put this sinful way of acting off and she's always got a verse there. And then she says, but we need to instead put this righteous uh, action or thought or whatever it is on. That's what we should be doing. So if you are wrestling with some of this, like how do I actually love my husband? How do I respect my husband? Really get this book and look through. She's got, like I said, various number of charts in here that are very, very, very practical. Because I can stand up here and I can tell you all these things and you can feel very convicted. But then you walk out the door and you're like, well, how do I do it? How do, I, how do I love my husband? I don't know. One thing I'm going to say before I close here is what do you think about? Whatever is in your heart is going to come out in your thoughts and it's going to come out in your words. It's going to come out in your actions. We have got to learn to think rightly, to think biblically. 
And so taking your thoughts captive, identifying the thoughts that are not aligned with scripture is key to your ability to live out scripture. And that means you have to think about it, which is meditation. That's all it is, meditation. Looking at scripture, thinking about scripture, and then evaluating whether or not you are obeying it. And if you are not obeying it, why are you not obeying it? And thinking about it and going to scripture and pondering, pondering, pondering. Does your mind all day long consider the truths of scripture and whether or not you are living according to it? If your answer is no, you need to change that. Your answer needs to be yes. All day long, every single day. We don't have a quiet time in the morning and check it off the list and then go on with our life. All day long throughout whatever we're doing, whether we're driving, we're making dinner, we're taking care of children, we're interacting with husbands, we're serving in the church, whatever it is, evaluating all day long, does my heart attitude reflect the attitude of Christ? Did that thought please him? Do I even know if that thought pleased him? Because I don't know scripture well enough to even know if that's a sinful thought. And then that drives us to the word so that we will know the word better so that then we can better see if our hearts reflect the true character of Christ. 